Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. Thanks very much. Doing as well as can be expected, given the times. I should first mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or any of the institutions of our guests. Today, we have a special episode on the effect of the novel coronavirus pandemic and its effect upon shoulder and elbow surgery. At the time of this recording, the pandemic is 266,000 confirmed cases with um, 16,000 cases here in the United States. Um, we are, we've invited four guests here and we're trying to encompass a couple of different regions in the United States. We're trying to get some insights into happening in each of these different areas and in a couple of different practice settings. Yeah, thanks so much, Pete. And before we get started with this podcast, we'd like to ex first extend our gratitude for all of the healthcare workers, our frontline workers, our city workers, and everyone keeping the stores open, the trucks running, and keeping daily life as possible as can be right now. Our thoughts are with everyone impacted by this virus, and we certainly wish speedy recoveries to anyone impacted. Um, so first, we'd like to welcome here our podcast guests. Um, first up, we have uh, Dr. Buddy Savoy, Chairman of Orthopedic Surgery at Tulane in New Orleans. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rachel. It's an honor to be included. Next, we have Dr. Kevin Plancher, founder of Plancher Orthopedics and Sports Medicine in New York City. He has clinical appointments at Albert Einstein Clinic, uh, College of Medicine and at Cornell. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Plancher. Peter and Rachel, it's a real treat and special to be able to share some info from New York City and uh, to our members. Thank you. And finally, we have Dr. Sarah Edwards, a private practice shoulder and elbow surgeon in San Francisco with a clinical appointment at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Edwards, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Peter, it's great to be here. All right, let's get started. So the first question I think we all have is, how have things changed in your department and your practice over the past week? So Dr. Edwards, let's start with you with the very recent introduction of the California-wide statewide shelter in place. How have things changed for you? Yes, we've had dramatic changes that are still evolving over the last week. Um, we had, Monday I was in clinic seeing patients as normal as could be. We were taking extra precautions. Patients were getting screened upon walking into the hospital. So they were met by a nurse at the door and they were screened. Their temperatures were checked before they were able to enter the building. And then we were seeing them uh, fairly normally. So I had a clinic and, and was able to do many visits, although I would say the volume was down. And then we had the shelter in place order go through about noon, which caused somewhat of panic in San Francisco. There was a lot of fighting in the grocery stores and people were, um, you know, definitely anxious about what was going on. And since that time, there's been an evolution to move all visits to telehealth. Uh, there was actually the San Francisco Department of Public Health mandated this yesterday. They also mandated the cancellation of all elective surgery through April 7th. And so everything has been canceled on my end of all my elective surgeries. 
Um, there's been no, and then the, the opposite is we've rapidly scrambled to do telehealth. So I've done telehealth from home the last few days where I'm calling patients and um, making checks and visits through that technique, but I'm obviously not examining anyone in person. And I would say the patients have been somewhat relieved when we call to cancel them because they're anxious and wondering if they're going to go through with their surgery or not. I have some patients who have been putting off surgery that now suddenly want to have surgery because they're off work and they're having a hard time understanding uh, why that needs to be done. I have a lot of young college kids uh, with surgery plans over their spring break that are disappointed that it's not going to happen. So that's kind of where we are right now. Certainly a lot of changes and seems to be evolving by the day. Dr. Seville, how about New Orleans? How are things changing within your practice and the department over there? So in New Orleans, we've uh, had a very high positive test rate. We just haven't had a lot of tests. And so we've gone from zero to 60 in a very rapid period of time. Uh, so far, we're staying ahead of the curve a little bit uh, other than one uh, a retirement facility where there's a real nest of cases and those folks are not doing very well. Um, in the department, uh, we just implemented a two-team approach because we want to have a backup team for residents and so they're going to rotate. Faculty are going to do the same thing. <clears throat> Beginning of the week, uh, we started doing the same thing that Sarah talked Thanks. about, which is contacting everyone by phone or by, by uh, FaceTime um, and just talking to them and seeing who really needed to come in. We had a uh, a plethora of post-op cases that we had to see, um, and we did screening at the clinic. So they get their temperature checks, they do a questionnaire, and then we can still see them. But I have to say, my experience with uh, was similar to Sarah's. When you call people, they're like, they think you are very caring. They know you're concerned about them because you're taking your time to call or FaceTime or uh, or talk to them that way. And then we explain telehealth will be implemented, implementing right now at our two-lane clinics and our hospital clinics are doing the same. We also moved all of our clinics that were in the hospital to peripheral sites so that they're not at risk uh, and we're not having so much traffic at the hospital where the COVID-19 patients are staying. So big changes afoot. Um, the Louisiana Department of Health just mandated no uh, elective surgeries, which is uh, you have to figure out how you want to uh, temporize that. They're going to let you have regular surgeries if tendon torn, ligament torn, that kind of stuff. Right now, you can still do those, uh, but they ask for you to use your judgment and maybe try to delay 30 days on things that can wait. Fractures can still go that need fixation, but the rest of it, like total shoulders, total elbows, for me, those have all been put back three months. Uh, so, uh, so the caseload is diminished, and so our utilization of uh, PPE and resources has diminished greatly. And then we're trying to stay ahead of the curve in terms of what we have available for equipment. And then how about for you, Dr. Plancher, give us a private practice perspective from New York City. So thank you, Pete and Rachel. Um, I wanna echo a little of what Sarah and Buddy said, but uh, our governor, Governor Cuomo, it's been already two weeks where we were not permitted to do uh, elective surgery. So we're a little ahead of it. At the moment, as Governor Cuomo says, that his main focus is, if I may be draconian, staying alive. And he hopes that people realize that health is wealth. And it's been difficult to educate both our elderly, who just don't understand it and reinforce it when they still meet with bingo 
games in their um, places when you're not allowed to congregate more than five to eight people. Together, you have to stay six feet away from another human being. And it's quite serious. And now in New York City, um, the only thing that's open are supermarkets for food, gas stations, pharmacies. So in our private practice, um, we started already two weeks ago with having one person uh, be on call and calling all our patients that ahead of time would have appointments so that they felt at home to know that they can reach us. We have someone on all the time and we rotate it and we rotate it with the doctors. But the idea is we're trying to help them if it's physical therapy, how to do home exercises, and we are using uh, telemedicine. We happen to use Zoom. And since HIPAA in our state has been lifted, uh, we can use many of the exciting platforms to be in contact with them. Like Dr. Savoie, the post-op patients were then scheduled when they were one person at a time with a break of about 40 minutes in between. And now we're kind of done because we're a little ahead. And so the office is officially open but closed. And that's by state mandate, as well as the hospitals that started this way before the academy decided uh, to cancel the meeting. And so we're feeling it, and we stay with families, and you're supposed to be with your immediate family only, and you may not visit others, and others may not visit you. So our fourth guest, I think, has joined us on the line now. Dr. Levine, are you there? I am here. I'm sorry, Peter and Rachel. Uh, I was just on my seventh emergency conference call of the day, so I apologize. <laughs> no, no problem. Dr. Levine, um, as everyone probably knows, is the chairman of orthopedic surgery at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Levine. Thank you for joining us. The, the question I'm hoping you can give us your perspective on this is how things have changed in the past week, um, given, given the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, thanks, uh, Peter. Um, well, I, I've been doing twice daily updates that I give to my 405 members of my department uh, via email. And uh, I, I started early on doing that because it's obviously this is so, uh, it's, it's so anxiety provoking to everybody because they're just not certain about what's going on. And, and I end the email by saying, uh, please bear with me because what I, by the time I hit send on this email, likely there will be things that will change and might be even incorrect by the time it hits your inbox. And uh, that's pretty true to form. So what's happened in a week? Well, we went from um, canceling all elective surgery um, to having uh, every, every surgery has to be uh, presented to me as the chair of the department. I have to approve it. It then would go to the chief medical officer and they would approve it. And they were very uh, we were very reasonable in what can, was considered emergent or, or semi-urgent, uh, but that number has been clamped down even further. Uh, we just That's the call I just got off uh, with our uh, CEO and all of the chairs and chiefs because the PPE issue has uh, reached even further critical mass. So we really have to basically do almost no non-emergent surgery uh, so that we have supplies, we have personnel, and we're going to soon need the uh, ventilators as well. Thank you very much. Certainly an evolving situation. Nice to get two perspectives from New York and um, from elsewhere around the country. We'll move on to the next question. So in each of your hospital systems, 
how long have elective surgeries and procedures been postponed for? And has this been an institutional mandate or a state mandate or both? And I think along those lines, it might be helpful to say what you're considering as urgent or emergent right now, because I think for our listeners, that's creating a lot of confusion. So Dr. Levine, since you just left off with this, why don't we start with you? So how, again, just to reiterate, how long have elective surgeries and procedures been postponed for? Um, was this an institution or a state mandate? Although I think and we know in New York, it's a state mandate at this point. And um, what are we considering in your case to be urgent, emergent, um, and needs to get done? Yeah, Rachel, it's a, it's a point of contention, frankly. Um, our CEO, Steve Corwin, was, uh, was on a call earlier today and, and was horrified to hear that not all the New York City programs have actually instituted a complete ban on elective surgery. Uh, surgery stand, stand, uh, standalone surgery centers are currently still functioning uh, without any uh, oversight. Uh, and so he's been pushing at the government at the governor level to try to stop that. Um, we actually at Columbia have work at a surgery center in New Jersey, and I pulled all procedures from that um, from that facility uh, last week. Uh, last week. Um, and so it's a it's a ever changing uh, field. But so when you ask what's currently um, emer emergent from us for us in orthopedics, it, it really comes down to I think three kinds of cases. One are acute fractures that cannot be managed uh, or delayed, and those will typically be lower extremity fractures right now. Uh, we were doing upper extremity fractures uh, um, if they were um, um, significantly displaced, but we're gonna have to postpone those. Uh, the second are tumors uh, that are in you know, some form of their chemotherapy and the procedure has to be done because relative to the chemotherapy. And the third are true neurologic uh, deficits, uh, either in the spine uh, world or in the extremity world where there is neurologic impairment. Uh, and we think that, that if we don't remove that, that impediment, that the neurologic impairment may be permanent. So that's really, I think those are the three categories at this point that we're um, looking at from an orthopedics perspective. Yeah, certainly a difficult and evolving situation. How about New Orleans, Dr. Savo? What's going on there in terms of how long you're delaying or postponing elective surgeries? Who mandated that? And what surgeries are you considering still a go? So initially, it was sort of voluntary. Anybody that was at risk, uh, 70 and up, uh, risk for the virus, secondary risk factors. And that started uh, right when the virus sort of first made its appearance here some three weeks ago. Um, move very rapidly to, uh, you should think about pushing back elective cases 30 days or more, and then the Louisiana Department of Health just mandated uh, Tuesday afternoon, so three days ago, that uh, anything that was, uh, was considered elective, and they cited some examples, should be delayed at least 30 days, if not longer. Well, we had already delayed all of our arthroplasties. Um, for the most part, high-risk groups, and it's, that's where we are right now. We're not as far along as Bill is in New York, um, and uh, but this mandate is, has been very interesting, and it's been met with mixed uh, <clears throat> responses, as you might imagine, amongst a variety of hospitals. But New Orleans is, in Louisiana, New Orleans is our hotbed. We, are, we have a very high incidence of almost 50% of patients who are getting tested are testing positive, and so it's a high-risk situation, and certainly uh, the uh, 
ventilators and the PPE and all the stuff you need is a concern. So right now, uh, anything relative that can be weighted, that can weight a total hip, a total knee, a total shoulder, a total elbow is all postponed at least 30 days. And for our practice at Tulane, we're postponing them two months because I don't think it's going to end in 30 days. Carpal tunnels, uh, dental work, you know, GI stuff, all of that is supposed to wait. From an orthopedic surgery standpoint, then we have, uh, for example, an acute rotator cuff can still go. A chronic rotator cuff cannot. Um, tennis elbow, elbow instability, all of those things, they don't have to go. Proximal humerus fractures that cannot be treated non-operatively, they can still go. So it's similar to what Bill said, a fracture for the most part can still go. And while you may be able to treat a comminuted intraarticular distal radius fracture non-operatively or a, a bad ankle fracture with displacement non-operatively, we all know that the outcome long-term of treating those in a cast is not very promising. And so those can all still go right now. Now, if our numbers continue to climb, uh, and our governor seems to think they're going to climb, then that may become a more restrictive uh, policy. But right now, we're, we're, we're in a point where you can do uh, urgent cases uh, as well as emerging cases, but elective cases have to wait at least 30 days, and I think that waiting period will be longer. Senator Plancher, give us another uh, New York City perspective. H how long for you has it been um, since since you've done elective cases, and are there still things that you're doing in your practice that are that you consider to be non-elective? So, um, thanks again, Pete. I think I should echo a little of what Dr. Levine said that if you break it down in the groups, the oncology uh, realm is still being done for those unfortunate that have cancer surgery that needs to be done vascular impediments or surgery and nerve uh, surgery with the complex fracture dislocations that Buddy had said that, you know, don't turn out as well long term. But given that, it's very restrictive, no different than Columbia, Lenox Hill, and Cornell. Uh, it has to go through a process, through your chair, through the chief medical officer, and then it has to be rationalized. The person has to be tested and, you know, testing doesn't come back right away at the present time and we're short. Uh, CityMD is an urgent care center. They said they maxed out with their four tests of the day. That's all they were allowed just the other day when they had people lined up to be tested. So for all intents and purposes, it's been about three weeks. We're not operating for the most part and it's not um, a question about joints and other things. It really has to pass through a lot of people to allow the operation to occur. And it is correct. There's distress that some private surgical centers are still open that really should be following the guidelines. But Governor Cuomo uh, goes on the air every day, and he is kind of um, setting the tone and the emergency orders. They just announced, I think, three hours ago that anyone over 70 years of age may not be outside without a mask on good, bad, or indifferent, that's been the rule now. And so you can see many of the mandates are not even coming from the institutions. They're coming from governmental agencies. And so it's quite limited, I would say to you, that we're, we're not basically uh, doing operations, whether it be elective. And if they're not elective, they need very good criteria to go forth in the operating room.
certainly an evolving situation. I mean, just getting that update from three hours ago is unbelievable. And by the time we get this podcast up for our listeners, things could change even further. Dr. Edwards, how about you? You know, you, your practice spans between both a formal academic institution as well as private practice. Um, how have things gone with regard to elective versus non-elective surgeries? And how long are you looking at postponing them? And have there been some differences between the private area and the academic area? Oh, yes, definitely, Rachel. Um, that's what I've seen when I'm currently a member of three different hospital systems, so privileges at multiple places, and everyone has a different mandate. So out here in California, UCSF and Sutter were on top of it right away and uh, canceled elective surgeries as of um, last Friday and over the weekend. And then so I was getting mandates from them that everything was canceled. It was interesting. The VA hospital still had everything on until the weekend. And once they saw, they kind of followed the lead of UCSF. But they're not getting much guidance from the federal government. It's, they're letting it be done by the individual institution, which is interesting. And then there's been one hospital system here that has held out. Uh, the Dignity System has said, you know, they are leaving it up to surgeon discretion whether you want to continue doing cases or not. So there are still some places where people are doing elective cases until, as I said yesterday, the San Francisco Department of Health came out and said all electives must stop even at ambulatory surgery centers unless they meet the criteria that you three have discussed already, where if it's an infection or something acute that has to be done, a fracture, then those are, those are allowed to go. Um, but again, we're facing a critical shortage of the equipment. And that's the number one reason they really want to shut things down, as well as to limit infection potential to the staff and, um, as, and to the surgeons and the patients that are coming in. So um, what's funny is even though San Francisco Department of Public Health came out with that mandate yesterday, I know that there are several people at ambulatory surgery centers cranking full volume today. So I'm not sure how it's going to be enforced. And uh, that's where we need some better guidance, I think. Rachel, what's well, the situation in, in Denver for us, for you guys? Are you guys still operating in Denver? How long have it, has it been since you've operated for elective cases? Yeah, thanks, Pete. Um, echoing what's been said, I think it's evolving. Um, in Colorado, at least at the University of Colorado, we stopped doing elective procedures this week on Monday. So we've been going five days now. Um, it's now government elected or, excuse me, government mandated that there's no elective or non-urgent veterinary, medical, or dental procedures to conserve PPE resources. Um, so any surgery that we would like to do has to go through our chair as well as our medical director within anesthesia. And I think everyone's been fairly good at not doing anything that's not urgent. And what we're considering urgent certainly are those lower extremity fractures that would cause otherwise significant morbidity or even mortality without going. Uh, infections that can't be managed with medical management, some tendon ruptures, and things along those lines. Um, literally everything else is being postponed for one month minimum, so mid-April, and I anticipate longer. How about you in Utah? What's going on there? Uh, on Monday, they canceled cases starting on that day, and um, we, we've worked really closely as a department to develop guidelines as to what we consider urgent immersion, and those have been circulated around the staff to make sure we're all in agreement <clears throat> to make sure we address those cases. Dr. Savoie talked about the ones where if you don't do something now, there may be a bad outcome later on. Um, and certainly there's been some back and forth about that, but I think that it's been very collegial and certainly I think we're all collaborating to do the right thing for 
for our patients. One of the things that I think is really interesting is about this is that, you know, one of the things everyone here has mentioned is that there is a push to continue to do cases. And I think that's in part because private practices are essentially small businesses. Certainly, if clinical volume drops, revenue drops, and some of these small businesses may then fail. One question I'd certainly have for the group is how you think this COVID-19 pandemic is going to change the landscape of American orthopedics. Dr. Levine, what are your thoughts? Well, um, it, it's devastating, Peter. Um, I, I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat it. Um, and while we say that the private practices are, are businesses, uh, Buddy and I are running a big, big businesses. And you're in a big business at Utah, and Rachel is at Colorado, and we've all lost our main mode of income. Uh, so this, you know, we're all fearful for our patients and for our, our, our the frontline uh, healthcare workers' safety at this time. But very much at the forefront is what the heck's going to happen from an economical standpoint and from a financial standpoint for all of our departments. I think that it's safe to say that there's going to be some significant fallout following the um, the return of work as we know it. Uh, I think that the lower performing doctors that were on departments or were in groups will likely not be able to be um, retained. I, I think that millions of Americans are losing their jobs because of this uh, pandemic outside of healthcare and within healthcare we're already seeing it. Uh, DME providers that we work with have laid off over 100 employees, um, and it goes on and on. Physical therapists, occupational therapists, nutritionists. Uh, so you go down the list and you think about what the impact is going to be, uh, and this is going to be a long-lasting impact that's going to have significant um, negative impact on so many people and so many families. Uh, not to mention, of course, just the healthcare risk that obviously is at the top of the list of concerns. Dr. Savoy, what do you think? Do you do you have a do you do you think that this is the that this is going to change the way in which we practice medicine? And certainly, I think the effects are going to be far-reaching, as Dr. Levine mentioned. Well, there's no question. There's multiple effects. There's going to be good things that come of it in the end. Telehealth posting exercise videos online. Maybe we don't need to see patients as often as, as we think we do. And the fact that now we'll set up a, a basically a virtual clinic <clears throat> should be much more convenient for patients. So some of the things I think are gonna be positive. The short-term negative effects, as Bill said, financially are devastating for a university system. We, basically our department, like many, we live month to month and it depends a lot on income from our physicians and surgeons and we're going to take a hit, um, and it's going to be a big one, and, uh, the, and and no one knows when that's going to finish up and when it's going to change. So there will be people either uh, losing their job or taking a significant pay cut uh, just based on this few months of income going down to nothing. So, you know, everything has good and bad parts to it, and so we'll become more efficient. We'll be more user-friendly. I think orthopedics will come more into the 21st century with a lot more virtual visits, a lot more telehealth medicine. Um, <clears throat> from an income standpoint, I think we'll learn how to bill for that. Uh, there are codes to do that, and most departments are on the cutting edge of, you know, advanced IT technology, or at least most universities, or maybe only ours is not. But, uh, but I think moving forward, some of the stuff will be positive. I think we'll learn 
as a group to improve our care, but financially, from a, from a business standpoint, this is going to be very difficult moving forward uh, to continue business as it was prior to the pandemic. Sarah, what about for you? When you when you look at the landscape of San Francisco or the Bay Area for orthopedics, how do you think it's going to change after this pandemic? Well, it is devastating. Uh, there are so many private practice docs in the area still that are not employed, uh, that are taking a hit. Um, one of my partners who's operating today, he said, well, if I stop, he said, what's going to happen to all these people in our office? They're all going to lose their jobs. And so I see both sides of it where there's a uh, social obligation to obviously limit the amount of equipment that you use, but he's thinking more from our, our practice perspective. Um, another uh, thing that we're looking into just to share with smaller private practice groups as well as with university systems is converting our outpatient service right now to mm. a semi-urgent care. One, you're helping offload the ER and allowing acute tendon lacerations uh, acute fractures to bypass going to the ER. So there's something called the 1135 waiver that any orthopedic practice in America can apply for right now that could be implemented that essentially allows you to function as an urgent care and see those patients and bill for urgent care visits, um, which is a higher level of service, a higher level of reimbursement. So that's something to think about for your group or for the small private practice people out there that are trying to figure out how they're gonna survive. Um, and I don't know if any of the larger systems, if any of you chairmen have, have considered doing that and setting that up in your office yet. Um, but yes, it's, it's devastating. Everyone's going to take yeah, it. Sarah, the whole country. Sorry. Yes. Sarah, uh -huh. this is Buddy Sabo. Sorry to interrupt, but we did, we have set up an out, actually I am at our uh, after hours clinic right now. Um, so right. we, we do a three to eight shift. Uh, originally it was set up to go after school, but of course there's no school in Louisiana right now. But it's a three to eight evening and it has done exactly what you said. Um, <clears throat> initially when we opened it back in the summer, it was mostly after school injuries. And, you know, you see five or six people, but it's an orthopedic after hours clinic. Now uh, we actually have started staffing it from 12 to 8 p.m because people are coming in, but it does decompress the emergency room. In fact, one of our hospitals now closed the emergency room, and if someone and they have someone manning the phone, then if it's an orthopedic problem, they send them to our after-hours clinic. So it really decompresses that and lets them focus on the virus and not on orthopedic problems. Then, Dr. Plancher, if you use your crystal ball and look at your region of the country and imagine the, the far-ranging effects of the virus, how do, how do you see the future of American orthopedics looking once we're through this? So I think it's important to realize if you look at the unfortunate nature where it started at Wuhan, it took three months before they started to level off with a number of cases, assuming that we we're able to test the people that are asymptomatic here in our area or in the United States to understand who is affected. So the first thing I think that's most disturbing is I don't believe in my heart this is a four-week and eight-week thing. I think this is truly a minimum of three months that we're going to see because the virus will do what it did in China as it's doing here. As people are trying to help develop the vaccine and moving, it's just not going to be available yet. So just as the governor says, we have to keep our elderly, our young, and everyone alive and do the right thing by COVID-19. But I think there's going to be a reset. Um, maybe perhaps 
uh, in private practice, we've already thought about at the level, do we have to keep people on and try to reduce their salary by 50% right now and see how long we can hold out? It's day-to-day, it changes, um, but I think at the end, the good things are, and, and through bad opportunities come good ones, the HIPAA uh, rules have been lifted that by the emergency declaration, and so these telemedicine platforms, there's going to be more that are going to come up, and I think we'll all be ending up using them in some fashion to triage our patients in the future once this uh, horrendous pandemic hopefully levels off. And so I think there will be a new normal. Um, It's a reset in values. It's a reset in opportunities and reimbursements, whatever business it is, whether it's healthcare or not, because of the great loss of of either jobs, uh, unemployment levels. And so it's being taken seriously by all of us today talking about it. But I think in medicine, uh, there's going to be a lot of volunteerism. And I think we have the right people in healthcare. But uh, I agree with Dr. Levine, Dr. Savoy. There's, there's going to be a lot of jobs that are lost until we can make up the difference. And I think we have to be realistic to know that it's a three-month uh, deal with a some innovation that I'm hoping people a lot smarter than me will help us as we care for the sick and ride it out. Well, thank you, Dr. Plancher, and thank you all so much for taking this time with us today and our listeners especially You know, speaking of these evolving changes, here's our next question. How are surgeons in your area handling clinic with social distancing? Specifically, what has worked and what hasn't worked? We realize this is an evolving art and evolving science for all of us, but I'm sure our listeners would love any tips on this. So, Dr. Levine, let's start with you. With regard to telemedicine, what's been successful versus not successful as you guys get started with this? Well, uh, just to give you a little uh, hint of, of what's happened, and it's really pretty incredible, and I have to credit our IT uh, team at NYP, uh, New York Presbyterian. Last Friday, we did 25 telehealth visits as an organization, and on Tuesday, we did 1,000 telehealth visits as an organization. Um, so the, the amount of man and woman power that's been been implemented for this has been remarkable. Uh, I did. I had 14 telehealth visits this morning uh, from 9 a.m. until 11. Uh, we have basically shut down all outpatient um, after Governor Cuomo uh, instituted the stay-at-home policy today. Uh, we further narrowed our outpatient visits to emergent visits only. Uh, everything else is telehealth. Um, our post-op visits, our post-op therapy visits are all being done via telehealth. Uh, and we're, we've closed seven of our eight office sites so that we don't have to have multiple people being exposed at multiple places. Uh, we, we're responding in kind to the epidemic, uh, trying to stay one step ahead as best we can. And whenever we do that, then the epidemic seems to get ahead of us. So we change yet again. And that's I think the only thing we can all do, and think about this as a global community right now, uh, not as an individual surgeon center or as an individual department. And while I totally respect what Sarah said about private practitioners, uh, we just can't think that way. Because if you use a mask for a partial meniscectomy today, 
that mask can't be used for somebody that is likely going to be exposed uh, to uh, coronavirus. And I just can't, I can't as a global citizen think that that's the right thing for us to be doing right now. Yeah, certainly. And wow, a thousand telehealth visits from 25. That's incredible. Um, Dr. Savoy, how are things going in New Orleans? I know you're doing your after hours clinic, as you mentioned, but any focus on telehealth and any tips or tricks for our listeners? So we're implementing telehealth. We're not nearly as quick as Bill in Columbia is. Uh, <clears throat> I think three days ago we did five and then 10 yesterday. And then this is a in-phase clinic where we screen people when they come in. So Telehealth's not a possibility here. I think across the system in orthopedics, we maybe did 100 altogether this week. So it's something we're implementing, but it's slow to roll out. Um, and like I said, Monday and Tuesday, it was mostly FaceTime. Uh, yeah, we would we'd call the patient and go, would you like Dr. Savoy to, to, to see you? Would you like to FaceTime or would you like to email or would you like to call? People have been, been, uh, been amazed at how gracious the patients are uh, when we do this, and it's it's uh, pretty easy uh, on on a FaceTime call, which as Kevin alluded to, is if they call me, it's not a HIPAA violation. If I call them, it is, and so uh, and and all of this stuff I think has been waived to a certain extent right now. I think Bill's right. Telehealth is going to be the wave of the future, um, and then trying to minimize patient exposure has been a big deal. And so we're trying to do the same thing. We have not closed our peripheral clinics. Uh, we actually have moved everything away from the central location to the peripheral clinics so we can lessen traffic in the hospital where the coronavirus patients seem to be uh, mostly congregated, especially the ones that are hospitalized. The other thing is that we don't let patients' family come in the room with them. Um, and so we have to have a nurse or, or a, a PA, he or she has to be in the room with us because uh, if we close the door, you don't want to be in there by yourself. So it's a little bit different in manpower. So we have screening people out front. We have people in the room when we go in the room and we stagger the visits, much like Kevin said, so that we don't have a waiting room full of patients. Hey, buddy, this, this is Bill. Just a point of clarification. Uh, Governor, uh, President Trump um, announced a waiver so that Skype and FaceTime are perfectly acceptable right now in addition yeah. to telehealth. Either way, oh, thank you goodness. can call anybody. So that's been one of the okay. best benefits of this. That is sure. Patients sure love that. I tell you, that that has been, I'm amazed at how much I, I, I really like seeing my patients face to face and talking to them and, and actually touching the shoulder or the elbow. And I feel like I learn a lot from that, but I'm truly amazed. And maybe it's, it's because I'm older and I don't quite value the technology as much, but I'm amazed at how much information I can gain from FaceTime. Show me your shoulder, move so I can see you. Oh, it's time to do this. It looks pretty good. Um, I, I think one of the big benefits of this will be that will be patient convenience because we can now talk to them at home and make decisions where they don't have to come in and spare the expense and time of an office visit. I'm, I'm, I'm truly amazed at that. Yeah, it's incredible what we can accomplish just through video, and it's nice to have some uh, decreased restrictions with regard to HIPAA compliance. Dr. Planter, you alluded a little bit to this earlier in terms of talking about the future of how we're going to practice orthopedics. Any tips or tricks for what you've done in your practice with telehealth? Any pearls for our listeners, especially our younger listeners who don't 
you know, I think one of the things is our younger uh, podcast listeners may not have the clinical experience at understanding all of the problems that can occur post-op or pre-op with patients. And, and you guys as experienced leaders in the field can sometimes figure out what's going on just from a phone call or just from looking at someone or talking to someone. Any tips or tricks on any of this? So, Rachel, um, to echo the platforms, I think whether you use Zoom or WebEx or FaceTime or other things, um, it's really a terrific outlet that seeing our patients and knowing that they care about, that we care about them is, is really important that uplifts their spirits when all the anxiety is going on right now, appropriately so. So we have decided, as I said, to space out its one patient in a 40-minute time if it needs to be seen at all, and perhaps it doesn't. The visitors or the person that brings them stays outside. We agree with Dr. Savoie and Dr. Levine that we have to limit the traffic and the social distancing. And I think that for this reason, the telemedicine has taken over the office visit. And um, I can say that we've educated our front office staff pretty rapidly how to use it, how to put it on um, the terminal servers. So each one of our computers there at home at the moment and they're still seeing their server live as if they're at work. And so we can triage the patients, and it's really brought it down to a minimal number of people to visit. We're very fortunate because we have people like Bill and Columbia and Buddy and other big centers. Um, but limiting social interactions is the key in, in stopping this virus. And I think with uh, telemedicine, what's worked is. I like Zoom because I can have, with permission from the patient, we can bring in a family member in addition to the patient. And so there are multiple uh, areas that you can see, and the family then listens. And as we know, listening to the doctor, it's, retention is tough. So I guess, do I have tricks? No. Do I think it's going to be the future right now? I do. And I think the younger uh, physicians just should realize that uh, things do happen post-operatively, and so one needs to be suspicious and to try to check in with their patients so that they can feel good about it that we're watching them. Totally. And Dr. Edwards, how about you? Any tips or tricks or anything you found helpful or not helpful as you get started with um, virtual medicine telehealth visits? Yeah, well, I will say my first, my first clinic, I did 12 patients from home. And it took me much longer than I anticipated. I thought it would be a quick phone call. Hey, how are you doing? And and they all wanted to talk. <laughs> so, and I um, so anyway, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, did it a lot a lot more time than you think you will need to do it. Um, the fact I'm trying to simultaneously homeschool my children might have been the problem too, because <laughs> I was interrupted a few times. But anyway, I uh, yeah no, I think it's great. I think it's nice that it's going to elevate this platform of service that we can give patients. I think in the future, once hopefully this virus issue calms down, whenever that may be, that we will all be doing probably a half day of telehealth clinic a week, which will help patients stay at work. They don't necessarily need to come in uh, and leave their jobs as frequently to come see us. And we can still you know, have a meaningful interaction, even over the phone or, or by Skype or Zoom, whichever way we're doing it. So I'm bullish on telehealth. <laughs> it's going to be good. Well, thank you all for um, 
for that. I certainly, I think that as everyone recognized, and as you guys were so kind to point out, it's a unique opportunity for us to make a change that maybe we should have made a long time ago. I also think this temporary shutdown gives us a unique opportunity to re-examine everything we do. And if you'll accept an analogy that my chairman gave me, he said, now that the boat is out of the water because of a hurricane, we can make all those repairs we've always meant to make, but haven't had time. So I guess we'll start with with uh, with you, Dr. Savoie. Now that now that the department's semi shut down, what what things do you think you might change? What repairs might you make or changes you might make now that you have the opportunity? So we've already talked a little bit about the telehealth aspect, and I think everyone in the department will be trained uh, before this is over and learn how to do that in the the convenience, as Sarah said, is just too much to pass on. I think that's going to be not only something that the department does and a service we offer, but it'll be a patient demand that why do I need to waste time to come in and, and be seen? I think we'll learn better how to uh, telecommunicate and do that. Second part of it is uh, efficiency of practice. Um, our folks now are going to have to learn how to practice more efficiently. <clears throat> You're going to change a little bit of what you do. You'll put, um, instead of putting uh, sutures or staples or anything that needs to come out of a wound, it's all going to be absorbable so that you can look at it and the patient doesn't necessarily have to come back for a routine first visit. Third thing I think will happen is they'll have access to local radiographic stations, so to speak, so that you can monitor an x-ray again without them having to come in. They'll go close to home, get an x-ray, text it to you, you look at it and go, Oh, oh, that looks good, or old oh, man, that looks bad, <clears throat> and you should come in right now because we have a problem. Um, so I think there'll be a lot more efficiency of healthcare. Um, this is probably the first time any of us have really thought about a potential shortage of resources. I mean, you have, uh, I mean, Bill and I especially, we'll have fellows, residents scrubbing in and out. We may have one person that puts a gown and glove on just to sort of so they could see better, and that's all going to go away. Um, you know, changing out personnel so they can get a break in the middle of the morning, that will go away. So I think from a conservation standpoint, we're now in a in a spot where we're all going to be thinking about it, and you can't have gone through this without thinking about resources. So I think that's all important. Dr. Plancher, what about you? As you have this unique opportunity to reexamine your practice, what do you think you might change? So through all this, I have to tell you, I'm hoping that hygiene, first of all, is first and foremost, um, because we're all practicing it now for good reasons, but you know, there are other diseases and I know, and I'm confident we're going to get through this at some point. So decreasing the number of other type of flus or other types of things. So I think some of the repairs that I'd like to see is in society as well as in our practice is to make sure we keep the utmost respect and hygiene and the working together. Um, somehow um, there was a joke about the different magazines. It used to be Life magazine, then it was People, then it's We, and then it's Us. It's time that we realize that we're all in this together and that if we can join forces as we, I think we do better in healthcare in some areas and other areas not, um, we're going to repair it. And so I'd like to see when one institution has something in New York City that we borrow that and work with it because it is about the patient at the uh, end of the day. It's not really about us. And so we will triage better. I think Buddy's correct. We'll be more efficient. And we're going to be compensated for telemedicine because the government already created those codes, which was very good. They acted nimble and fast. 
And so I think everyone is on the same page, especially since we have to figure out what the loss of the unemployment that's going to happen. So I'm excited to grasp it, to learn it. I'm an old dog and to know how to do it better. And I think our patients will respond uh, positively for it. Dr. Edwards, what about you? When you when you have this brief shutdown, what what do you think you might change? What 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 repairs will you make to your practice or changes? Well, I think again, limiting the number of um, in person visits, I think is is going to be what I'm going to be doing moving forward. I think definitely having more of a stockpile of equipment. Uh, for personal protection. It's interesting in our private practice, we have no masks, we have gloves, but we don't keep masks in our private office. Um, we had trouble getting antiseptic wipes to wipe our tables down. Um, basic things that you need because everything's on such back order here. We ended up buying bleach and making our own solution to do Clinic Monday to, to clean the tables. Um, so we're that short on equipment. So the equipment pinch is real, um, and I know it's across the country. Uh, Dr. Sabal, you were saying you still, you know, you guys are in pretty good shape down there, but I think on the coast we are really struggling, and it's going to be interesting. I, I was speaking to a Kaiser doctor the other day who told me that they have about two to three weeks of equipment left at Kaiser, personal protective equipment. And I have a real concern for the physicians on the front line. Like, what's going to happen in two to three weeks? This is supposed to be peaking. And then who's, what are they going to do to evaluate all these patients? You know, the doctors are going to be sick. The doctors are going to be dying. The first doctor died in Seattle, I think, yesterday or two days ago. And more are going it, to, it's, it's awful. So, I, um, again, I think as a private practitioner, again, having more of those supplies online, keeping, this is, of course, an unanticipated event, right? How, I mean, We've known for a few months, but I don't think anyone really comprehended how severe it would be. Dr. Levine, what about uh, for you guys in New York City and at Columbia? What 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 changes do you foresee making, maybe not even in response to the virus, but just because you have this opportunity while things are shut down? Well, Pete, I think that um, we're all thinking outside the box right now. And so I think that you know, if you think about, for example, at, at New York Presbyterian and Columbia, I now have five hospital systems that are under the Columbia Orthopedics uh, umbrella. And so um, we've already started doing telemedicine uh, for conferences, but that's going to expand greatly now. We're going to expand that to all of our curriculum. For Right now, we're doing tele telemedicine for our residents core curriculum because we don't want them to be uh, congregated we uh, don't have all our residents coming into the office into the hospital we've broken them into five groups so uh, today at 12 noon we had a zoom meeting uh, for core curriculum fracture conference has gone to zoom conference for now uh, so every zoom is getting a lot of good PR on this uh, podcast and deservedly so at one o'clock this afternoon, I got together with our program director, associate program director, and our six new matched residents uh, to share the celebration of the match despite the uh, you know, social distancing uh, that we're all doing. So, 
you know, I think that's going to be our new norm. And, and a lot of that will, as Buddy said, that is, you know, out of, out of chaos comes opportunity. And there are plenty of opportunities to think about things that we haven't been doing particularly well that we've just been doing because it's been the way we do things. Uh, and that, that, those times have changed and those days are gone. And I think all of us will take the opportunity to sit back and say, what are we doing today that really hasn't been probably the best, the best for patients, the best for our residents, the best for our faculty, and where can we improve? And so I, I'm excited about those opportunities, frankly. Well, thank you all very much. It's definitely good to know that there's some light, some silver lining with all of this uh, tragedy that's going on. You know, for our last question, with our orthopedic surgeons having more free time because of the ban on elective cases and clinics, what's one new thing that each of you are doing to occupy your time? If you could give us either a one-liner or one new hobby or something you're doing, maybe something to suggest for our listeners at home. Dr. Levine, I'm sure you don't have much more free time given your role as, as chair, but anything that you could that you're doing or you could suggest for our listeners? Well, Rachel, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not a good person to ask in this in this last seven days because uh it's been a lot. Um I bought a couple of books uh that I'm I'm gonna read. Um I started to watch the Hulu documentary last night on Hillary Clinton, which Sarah Edwards will probably recoil that I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and uh, But there's not a lot of free time right now, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I can imagine. How about, um, is, you know, Dr. Savoy, I think it's probably the same thing, just a lot of meetings and conference calls and whatnot, but anything you're doing or doing with your family that's new that you haven't had an opportunity to do, you know, before this pandemic? No, I'm like Bill. We have, we have, I'm, sort of with four different hospital systems and each one has two calls a day. So there are eight conference calls twice a day, eight calls all together. And between that and trying to do a little bit of patient care, that's about it. So there's nothing new. And my wife, Amy, is a nurse. And so she's actually working harder probably than I am, given that she's more of a frontline person. So we're pretty all in on the virus right now. Um, in uh, New Orleans, unfortunately, for the first time ever, all the bars and restaurants are closed. And so uh, by state decree and by mayor's decree. So there's nothing to do in the city right now, which is amazingly and uh, uh, unfortunate to have a little bit of free time and not have anything to do in the city. Yeah, certainly a, a change for sure, to say the least. And Dr. Plancher, again, I imagine you're incredibly busy just managing things with your practice and being involved in the scene in New York City. Anything that you're doing that's new or any suggestions for our resident or fellow listeners or our younger orthopedic surgeons who are listening to the podcast? So I would say, as crazy as it sounds, I decided to go back to my books and call the med school and better understand vir virology and to really learn a little more about this and from the infectious disease point of view and be respectful of the executive orders that the governor or the city are laying when others aren't and try to nicely say, you know, you guys shouldn't be congregating or helping our elderly right now and then learning the platforms, getting better on how to be facile. As Sarah said, it took her a little while on the telemedicine. So I would say we all should educate ourselves. We do orthopedics amazing, uh, but maybe we need to learn. You know, we're learning about the use of chloroquine now, maybe, and helping some of these patients in the unit and how we're going to combat this. And 
listen to the announcement so we can get smarter because we're a pretty smart group. And Dr. Edwards, you had mentioned that you're doing some homeschooling now in addition to your other <laughs> responsibilities. Um, any other new um, hobbies or old hobbies that you've picked up with some of the free time, if you have any, I'm sure it's crazy busy for you too. Yeah, well, I'm really, really glad that I bought a Peloton for myself for Christmas because I have been <laughs> you know, locked in the house for a week and I've been working that Peloton to death. <laughs> We've been on it. And uh, my children are using the Peloton for PE class. But yes, I have an 11 and an 8-year-old at home. And between teaching sixth grade and second grade and calling my patients, it's been challenging. <laughs> and so... But we're trying to have fun. We've been posting videos online once a day of a homeschool lesson that we've done if anyone's interested to follow. <laughs> Sarah Edwards, MD. <laughs> there are, um, on Twitter, there's a homeschool lesson that we've been doing every day. So my, my friends all around the country are following, and hopefully we're making some people smile out there. Well, we definitely need a lot more smiles. Pete, what are you doing? Anything, I mean, I'm sure you don't have a lot of free time either. Might be writing a paper an hour. Um, anything you're doing that's different with some of the um, time off that you have from not doing surgery or clinic? Yeah, I mean, we've certainly uh, in our division had a kind of a refocus of our research and trying to figure out what what we can get accomplished while we have some downtime. Um, certainly, we have some long-term goals, and it gives us an opportunity to do some stuff that I've wanted to do for a long time. So that's been maybe a little bit of a silver lining. What about you, Rage? You know, same thing, catching up on some research um, and uh, just trying to make myself available if people get sick, if we need to, you know, help with um, spine call or things like that. Fortunately, we're, we're good right now, but just making sure I'm doing my part to not get sick so I can be available. And um, I don't have a Peloton like Dr. Edwards was mentioning, but have my bike on a trainer. I've been doing that pretty religiously and just trying to stay occupied. Um, so, you know, lots of changes, time we, we never thought we'd have and probably don't want to have. I think all it's orthopedic surgeons, we like to be busy, do our surgeries, do our cases. And right now we just need to do our part and, and help as much as we can. Well, Dr. Levine, Dr. Edwards, Dr. Plancher, Dr. Um, Savoy, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time um, to share your insights and your experiences with us. Um, I, I know everyone's got a lot that's going on right now and it's a scary time. And I think that um, just, just hearing you talk about it will be really helpful to our listeners to understand kind of what's happening in the country from an orthopedic shoulder specific perspective. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This is about all the time we have for this podcast. For all our listeners, please make sure to do your part, wash your hands, take care of your family. Unless you have to be at work, stay at home and flatten this curve. And again, I'll echo Pete, thank you so much to our guests for spending a time out of their very busy days with us. For all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.